Hello, everyone, and welcome to the What About the Canadians podcast. My name is Ashley. And my name is Shauna. And we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we will be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we'll be examining the battles the Canadians served in. All right, welcome back everybody after our little hiatus that we took uh, over the Christmas holiday. Yeah, it wasn't Christmas. It's already been a long year, Shauna. I don't feel like we even had a Christmas break. <laughs> oh, it's just too much. <laughs> the point is we took a little break, but we're back. Yeah. And I'm excited. So in today's episode, <laughs> we're talking about the battles of St. Elwa and Mount Sorrel. Now, before we jump into those uh, battles, we're going to just do a quick little recap of what happened in our last episode. Good, because I don't remember where we're at. Where are the Canadians, <laughs> Ashley? <laughs> Help me out, please. It's been a while. Well, I'll tell you, Shauna. So after a disastrous offensive at the Battle of Aubers Ridge, Commander-in-Chief of the British Expeditionary Force, Sir John French, ordered the First Corps to Festibert at Givenchy in May and June of 1915. Now, our Canadians were called in to aid the Allies in their hurried plans to overrun enemy lines as German soldiers were being actively redeployed to Turkey to join the Gallipoli campaign. Now, after the Battle of Festibert, the Canadians were moved south to defend an orchard near the little town of Givenchy. And this is where we see an exchange of heavy, heavy artillery and machine gun fire between the Allies and Germans. But... Of course, if you want to know more about these battles and how they ended, uh, go listen to episode three. You, of course, can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. All right, so we're going to start off um, dis our discussion of the Battle of St. Elwa going down a little bit more of a somber route, so... Let's take a breath. Take it down, Ash. Serious. Yes, we're going to take a breath. Let's go. In the trenches, the foul stench of exhaustion awoke the men from a troubled sleep. The excitement and romanticism of the war had swiftly slipped away into the past. Now there was almost cruelty in the memory of sleeping in a warm, comfortable bed and waking up to the smell of a hot breakfast and a hug from a loved one. It had been over a year since the Battle of Festibert, and day after day, the men would crawl out from their dank dugout just before the break of dawn, lock their bayonets into their rifles, and wait for the, an attack that was likely never to come. When the inevitable orders to stand down were given, breakfast was served. Now, according to Lieutenant... Oh, I said Lieutenant instead of Lieutenant. That's okay. <laughs> Louis Keane, their daily meals were generally unpalatable. He recalled that we mostly lived on bully beef and hardtack. Now, truthfully, when I first heard that, I thought of bully sticks. And I was like, that's disgusting. <laughs> totally different thing. Different. I think bully beef is like corned beef, isn't it? It's corned beef. Yeah, okay, so he, good. <laughs> he, he clarifies. He says the first is corned beef and the second is a kind of dog biscuit. 
Uh, we always wondered why they were so particular about a man's teeth in the army. Now I know. It's on account of these biscuits. The chief ingredient is, I think, cement. So if a soldier was lucky, he was treated to a care package from home. Even though the perishable goods had usually gone stale or moldy by the time it arrived at the front, it was a welcome change, and he shared it with his closest mates. Now, after breakfast, the mundane tasks of the day could begin. It usually began with a quick wash and maybe a shave with water from a nearby shell hole, use of the latrine, a clean of their rifles, and inspections. Now, although seemingly impossible, it was important for the soldiers to remain as clean as possible. Now, rats carrying disease and lice ran rampant throughout the trenches, and it wasn't uncommon to see the men come down with pneumonia, scabies, and typhus. And actually, one of the greatest threats um, was influenza at the time. Um, if people, I guess, would know because of COVID and the comparison to the Spanish influenza that's been going on in the news over the last year and a half, um, in 1918, that, that broke out and it killed over 4,000 Canadians throughout the course of the war there. Um, in addition to that, every day the medical officer would meticulously examine the men for potential trench foot. Now, soldiers were required to change their socks and slather whale oil on their feet daily, which was usually an unwelcome task due to the horrendous smell. But failure, failure to follow protocol resulted in a reprimand for both the soldier and the unit's commanding officer. Now, soldiers would also line up for what they called the sick parade, meaning if a soldier was too ill to fight, they would have to be inspected by a medical officer before receiving permission to move to the rear. So like children trying to get out of school, soldiers would often fake being deaf from a shell explosion or take a mild laxative to induce diarrhea. So even the self-induced suffering was worth getting off the front line for the day. So in this case, medical officers often had to be very thorough in their examinations so as not to be fooled by these men. But of course, it was always a welcome day when an inexperienced young medical officer came to the front. Now, finally, there was both the long arm and short arm inspection. Now, one was to ensure that the soldiers' rifles were kept free from dirt and rust, while the other was to check whether the soldiers... I'm going to just say maybe their personal <laughs> firearm was in good working condition. <laughs> what a diplomatic way of putting that out. <laughs> but as author Tim Cook noted, at least the dignity of the exam was often reserved for areas to the rear of the trenches where the men had less chance of being killed with their pants around their ankles. <laughs> <laughs> That was thoughtful of them. <laughs> so after managing personal hygiene requirements, uh, damaged trenches from either shell fire or the weather had to be reconstructed. Now, at times, the damage to the trenches from the rain alone was so considerable during this time that labor units worked two days straight to repair them. Now, for those not selected for work fatigue, the soldiers had plenty of downtime to write letters and, you know, play card games while smoking their cigarettes or just catch up on some sleep. 
It's actually kind of interesting though. I read that cigarette smoking was prohibited during like uh, rotations. Like often the Germans could see sort of that faint glow of the embers from the cigarette of like new troops moving up to the front. Now, because the troops were often preoccupied during this time, it was a great time for the Germans to launch an artillery attack. So you had to be particularly careful about when you chose to smoke your cigarettes. Um, but moving on, um, the soldiers, um, of course, were not restricted to the front lines the entire time. Um, in turns, they could find reprieve from the never-ending war in the rear, and occasionally they did receive temporary leave. So from here, the soldiers would often wander into nearby towns or villages, often looking for either love or trouble, and often they found both. Now, Arthur Schutt, who was a junior artillery officer, noted that the soldiers found nothing to welcome them but cafes and harpies and would inevitably be tempted to act out in undesirable ways. But um, there were some that had a greater inclination for more, I, I guess I'll say wholesome work. Uh, religious services were often held on Sundays and it often grew high attendance, or not grew, it drew. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the religious fervor grew in the army, I don't know. <laughs> it might have, you gotta cling to something, I guess. I guess. Um, and then there were often farmers um, who, were feeling a little bit homesick, they too would like lend a hand to the farmers um, in Belgium and France, or at times build a substantial enough garden that would help feed their fellow soldiers. Uh, the Canadian soldiers also had a penchant for sports, um, particularly baseball. Uh, games were played battalion against battalion, often drawing crowds from nearby locals or other soldiers. And it was really an opportunity to forget about rank and order as it was perhaps really the only time that a private could jeer at an officer and uh, just get away with it. So, I mean, the bottom line is all these activities brought the soldiers some form of normality and escapism from the war. Um, and it was an important element um, to maintaining morale. <laughs> it was actually kind of funny. I was reading that uh, in the rear, like they also had like concerts and, and plays and whatnot just to sort of keep the soldiers entertained. But I guess um, drag performances were often quite common <laughs> back then. <laughs> I saw, I can't remember what movie I was watching now, but I recently I saw a movie and a bunch of the soldiers were dressed up in drag and then like an artillery um, bombardment hit and they ran to their artillery all in dressed in drag and they started firing off like that. And I, oh, I wish I could remember what that was. Oh, that's funny. I thought that was funny because it seems very 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I didn't have women around there to play the parts. Oh, totally. Um, like I relied a lot on the book from um, Tim Cook and he just said it kind of provided a sense of escape from this like harsh masculine world of soldiering. So I guess it kind of made sense, but I guess in music halls, like before the war, they had drag performances. So it wasn't like unusual for the time. Yeah. I think it was part of a lot of burlesque and vaudeville in that, right? I guess so. Hmm. That was something I learned. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway, um, it is important to remember that during this time, the Germans continued to maintain their dominance over the Allies, both in firepower and geographic location. Just meaning that the Germans primarily held the high ground, which allowed them to construct strong points along the slopes. So not only could the Germans see enemy activities below, but they could easily fire against any enemy attackers climbing uphill. Now, furthermore, the crest of any ridge provided a natural barrier between the trenches and enemy fire, making any allied advances extremely difficult. So this is why for the better part of a year, um, the war along the salient remained rather stagnant. Stagnant, no, stagnant. <laughs> um, but stagnant doesn't necessarily mean quiet or free from danger. So the danger that Ashley is alluding to is actually one of the biggest problems that plagued the soldiers, and that was shell shock. And it was called shell shock or war neuroses. There was a ton of different names, but generally in World War I, the common name was shell shock. And it's what we would call PTSD nowadays, um, but PTSD is a little bit more general. It can come from all sorts of trauma, um, but this one was specifically World War I from the trenches or around the battlefield. And it's not a new phenomenon, although it seems like it does like it is because this was one of the first recorded and treated large-scale incidences of this kind of trauma. But we do see it throughout history that people, particularly particularly soldiers, haven't been immune to seeing the death and suffering that comes along with war. After the Battle of Marathon by Herodotus, I think that's how you say it, in the 5th century of ancient Greece, they wrote of the soldiers having bad dreams and flashbacks. And in Shakespeare's Henry IV, there was um, a speech by one of the women in there. And she goes on about her husband having bad dreams and not being able to sleep and sobbing. And so it's it's been with us forever. But this was the biggest war that the world had ever really seen. And so obviously, it was the biggest inc incidence of shell shock or PTSD at the time. And the problem started early on in the war and it became more noticeable as time went on and it became more concerning and more frequent in the winter of 1914-1915 when British frostbite patients were coming back to England for treatment. But only a few of them had physical symptoms and they seemed more jumpy and more emotional than many of the others with more intense physical injuries. So you couldn't see it necessarily. They might've come in with a bit of frostbite, but there was way more to it. Um, but it was extremely difficult to diagnose since this was a somewhat new phenomenon and its symptoms presented in a variety of ways. It could be anything from inattentiveness, which they called the thousand mile stare or thousand yard stare. People would just stare off into the distance and wouldn't be present really there. Um, they would have com complete emotional breakdowns. They wouldn't be able to speak. They would stutter. They would panic at the sound of certain words, like the word bomb. If somebody said bomb, they would panic and hide under the nearest thing to them. Um, they would have nightmares or they wouldn't be able to sleep at all. So there was a lot of different ways that this could manifest. Um, originally, many doctors and psychiatrists believed that it was a physical condition that was brought about by the concussive nature of artillery explosions that could cause mini brain hemorrhages 
or maybe the carbon monoxide poisoning from the blasts. But more and more patients came to the medical stations and hospitals without being subject to any artillery fire or sometimes even combat. They might have been behind the lines and they were still experiencing these kind of symptoms. So some sort of hypothesis needed to change there because it wasn't meeting all the criteria. But there was a Canadian named Sir Andrew McPhail, and he was a physician, a writer, a soldier, an intellectual And he actually wrote that the manifestation was of childishness and femininity. He thought that it was just for the weak and it wasn't a real condition. It was just these wussies that couldn't handle war. But it did become clear to the civilian doctors more than the military ones and the scientists, uh, such as Frederick Mott. He had a hypothesis. He was the one or one of the people that had hypothesized that it was a physical concussive issue, but it could be a psychiatric issue. Um, Many different treatments became available. In the beginning, men were often removed from the battlefield. They were brought back to England to convalesce, but it soon became really clear that manpower was running low. They were losing a ton of soldiers to this at the time, and they couldn't really afford that. They were returning to the battlefield at a lower rate, so they had to find a way to get these men fixed, in a way, and then brought back. Uh, So the British and French started using the pie method, which was proximity to the battlefield, immediate response, and expectation of recovery. Uh, This involved setting up hospital units about 10 miles from the front and assisting those showing symptoms of shell shock there and then basically turning them over and sending them back to the front. But the civilian doctors that were either at at these hospitals or back in England had a really big problem with this because these men had taken oaths to save lives. And really this was not, that was the opposite of that because these men were going back to the field and they were not okay with this. And it was just, I, I saw... Somebody say that it was like a man with a machine gun behind the lines shooting at their own men, trying to get them back. So it wasn't a positive way to handle it. They were just sending them to their deaths. deaths. Um, but neurologist George Guillon, I think, or Gillian, I'm not sure, of the British Sixth Army found that this condition could be perfectly curable at the onset instead of being removed. He found that these men, once they had a good night's sleep and they could have a little bit of food, he thought that they were good to go and he didn't really push the issue farther. But that wasn't the best way to handle it. I mean, obviously, once they got back, there was problems. They might have seemed cured, but there was so many different types of treatments at the time. Uh, They ranged from really benign to completely abusive at these hospitals. Um, Some doctors favored discussing memories. It was a Freudian technique. And they discussed them at length and try to get rid of the trauma. And kind of by the end of the war, it ended up in electric shock therapy, trying to get their nerves to awaken, I guess. Um, But many doctors believe that that good bit of rest and some routine exercise and then running drills, uh, like army drills and marching, would snap the men right back and they'd be fine. Uh, The numbers show that the majority of men were sent back to the front, but there were no follow-up studies and no way to monitor how they were faring there. 
So a lot of them were obviously just killed in battles or a lot of them came back too. There is a 27% relapse rate at one of the hospitals, which is huge for that sort mm-hmm. of problem. So, I mean, it obviously wasn't working, but they didn't really have much of a choice because there was no men to fill their place on the front. A letter home from William Stairs, he was a scout for the 21st Battalion, wrote home to say, yes, my nerves so far have stood the strain, and I hope they do. Nothing is more horrible to look at than a fellow suffering with nerves, a complete physical wreck. So the soldiers knew that there was a problem here and that they wanted to stay away from it, but there's nothing that they could actually do to avoid it. Throughout the war, the treatments would evolve and change, like I said, with the electric shock therapy coming in at the end. But at one point, they had convalescent homes or hospitals set up on the French coast. And instead of the drills and the electric shock therapy, they decided to let the men really actually relax and enjoy life for a little bit. And they got them doing sports instead of drills and farming. And that was kind of like what you were saying, Ash. They, they would farm food for the troops and to help their camp and all that. So I think that that was probably one of the more humane ways to handle this. We normally think about shell shock in terms of World War I because that's the term for that war, but it's not like it disappeared. I mean, it's still with us for soldiers that have to go to war. Um, And in World War II, there was actually a significant amount, even more cases in World War II than there was in World War I, but they just changed the name. In World War II, one of the terms they used was post-concussional syndrome, but it was generally the same thing. So in all, over 10,000 Canadians were diagnosed with shell shock and over 80,000 British. But unfortunately, after uh, after the war, there was... Little to no support for these men. They just had to go home. Their doctors didn't know anything about this condition and the army didn't set up anything for them. So they just had to live with this for the rest of their lives, most of them. Wow, that's very sad. <laughs> it is. I had the the sad, hard one today. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that probably, I would assume, contributed um, when soldiers got home to increased, like, Probably homelessness and alcoholism and all that. Yeah, we've heard about that, like, with, um, I know in the U.S. more so, but, like, Vietnam, you you hear about a lot of that, like, alcoholism and, and homelessness and problems. And, yeah, it's, I mean, it wasn't good for them. And even, I know, soldiers that I've read about and soldiers that are our relatives, they lived forever with nightmares about that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, how do you not? Oh, well. Okay. <laughs> I guess I'll move on to my part. <laughs> on to the next. <laughs> All right. Um, so before we dive into the battles of 1916, um, we are going to touch on the organization of the Canadian Corps during this kind of year of stagnation. So um, if you remember, uh, the first wave of soldiers came to Europe in late 1914 and early 1915. Now, at the time, recruitment um, offices were turning away volunteers, but by the end of the Battle of Festiburre, there were already over 9,000 casualties and and additional manpower was greatly needed, um, which Shauna, you kind of talked about there. So the second division um, actually kind of got started um, right when the, the first division landed in Europe. Um, and they were able to arrive in mid-September of 1915. 
And they were placed under the command of Brigadier General Richard Turner, who was a favorite of Sam Hughes. And the 1st Division was placed under the command of the newly promoted Major General Arthur Curry. Now, General Alderson remained at the helm of the Canadian Corps, and he set to task training these new recruits. So by this time, the Canadians had real battle experience, and they applied lessons learned to their training programs. So we're not talking about Valcarche here, where the soldiers are training with swords. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this new training program included the establishment of a new um, curriculum um, in topics such as trench warfare, you know, machine guns and snipers, everything that's a little bit more practical um, in nature uh, and what the soldiers would experience on the front lines. And um, unlike the 1st Division, the 2nd Division wasn't thrown into the deep end of the pool when they arrived to Europe. Now, we say that the war was stagnant, but it, it was stagnant for the Canadians. It wasn't stagnant for everyone else. Now, the French and British actually continued their offensive campaigns in Vimy Ridge, Artois, and the Champagne regions. Now, the 2nd Canadian Division did engage in some diversionary tactics at the Battle of Luz, um, but their involvement was rather negligible. Um, and I say negligible as in like small. So comparatively, in the fall of 1915, the British and French had lost over 260,000 men. Now, these astronomical losses resulted in the replacement of General John French, commander of the British Expeditionary Force, and he was replaced with General Douglas Haig. So um, the Canadians did make use of their time to evaluate the effectiveness of their weaponry and general strategies. So just for example, um, the Colt machine gun had replaced the Vickers because it was more reliable. Um, but most notably, it's during this period that we do see the downfall of our good old friend, Sam Hughes and the Ross rifle. Now, although the Ross rifle had been expunged from the some units, it was still technically the official rifle of the Canadian Corps. Um, but by this time, there was growing division between the ardent supporters and those that called for the replacement of the weapon. And this resulted in a huge political divide, both on the battlefields um, of Europe and on the home front. Hold on, but Ash. Hold on. I got a question. Sorry. Oh, okay. You said the downfall of our friend Sam Hughes and his rifle, or like, did Sam Hughes go down? Is he done? No, he's not dead. Oh, well, no, I didn't think he was dead. But oh. like, did he, <laughs> is he gone at this point? Did he get kicked out? Um, I think it's, it's around this time he gets kicked out. It is in 1916. I don't remember the exact. Did you do a little dance? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I think I've talked about him enough. <laughs> yeah, for those who haven't listened to our other episodes, Ashley hates Sam Hughes. I don't hate him. <laughs> I'm just retelling what history has told me. <laughs> oh, God. You probably get some letter, like, refuting everything I've said. <laughs> <laughs> really defending, passionately defending <laughs> Sam, Sam Hughes. Oh, God. And those cardboard boots. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, but uh, anyway, Alderson, um, he kind of worked with the British High Command to have these weapons replaced entirely. 
And in, of course, typical Hughes fashion, he responded by sending a letter to all the commanding officers in the Canadian Corps um, in, a, in an attempt to disparage the general. But like as we were talking, we know how that story ends. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's a character. I'll give him that. <laughs> So um, if we jump forward to about April of 1916, um, we do see the arrival of the 3rd and 4th Division to the front. Uh, the 3rd was commanded by General Malcolm Mercer and the 4th by Major General David Watson. Now, we're not going to go into a lot of details about these commanders. We do so um, in a later episode, so you'll have to hold on tight for a little bit. So with this creation of the 2nd Division, we start the Battle of St. Eloi. And St. Eloi is a village about five kilometers south of Ypres, so we're not going very far here. It's all happening in the same area over this time. Um, and because the salient had formed that we talked about in the Second Battle of Ypres, the trenches in this area almost ran east to west rather than north to south, which was what was more common on the Western Front, thanks to the race to the sea. The British and Germans in the area had been entrenched for a long time and were really still fighting over close to the same ground that they were a year before. The Germans held, or the Germans again held the high ground in the area called the Mound, which again gave them the advantage when it came to the artillery. But this time the British had a plan to counter this, finally. So in April of 1916, both sides had been using sappers, which is really just a French word for someone who's digging. But in reality, these men had to be engineers and work quickly, effectively, and very quietly. The Germans would dig tunnels that were about three to nine meters beneath the surface to advance into no man's land. But the British had more modern equipment and were able to dig 15 to 25 meters deep, which would just terrify me. I'm not very close claustrophobic, but that sounds horrible to go that deep. Did you have problems when we were in the the um, underground at Vimy? Oh, uh, a little bit. Yeah, okay. I mean, it, I wasn't too bad, but I'm not, yeah, it freaks me out a little bit. I just wouldn't okay. want to collapse. That that would be always in the back of my mind. I, no I never noticed. Well, could I hold myself together <laughs> well then? <laughs> but I know when we were in um, Paris um, for the... Uh, the catacombs. Oh, yeah, that one bugged me. Well, to be fair, me. in the catacombs, you're surrounded by bones, and that's much more gross than just dirt. Right, but even the depth of it and the darkness of it was just eerie. Yeah, yeah, it would. And when we went in at Vimy there, it, I feel like, you know, it was it was brighter because we had lights and not just candlelight. And, you know, we didn't have to be quiet because nobody was trying to kill us, so... You know, that lightens the mood a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, both sides would use explosives to destroy the other's position. But now, since the British were able to dig so much deeper, they could actually go directly underneath the German positions to do that. Uh, before the Canadians arrived, the British were able to dig underneath the mound and position thousands of pounds of explosives. Even though the Germans heard through radio transmissions that there was to be an attack, um, at 5.40, or sorry, 4.15 a.m. on March 27th, they detonated these huge amounts of explosives. The explosion was so large that they could hear it in England. It blew seven new craters in the area, and a lot of little ones too, 
and the biggest was 55 meters wide and 20 meters deep. Wow. Huge swath of land that they just destroyed. Because of all these craters, the offensives here were different than what had happened in a lot of the previous battles. Generally, there would be an artillery barrage and one side would attack the other to break the line and push back. This time, however, the de- after the detonation, both sides rushed in in an attempt to occupy those craters that now existed. It was an intense altercation that was fought by rifle fire and a lot of hand-to-hand combat. The light rain soon turned into a downpour and flooded these craters that the troops were fighting so hard to secure, so many men drowned as they were pulled into the absolutely suffocating mud. The 3rd British Division, so not Canadians at, um, were struggling to keep up this fight. So this is when the Canadian 2nd Division comes in and they were rushed in as relief. This was their first major engagement on the Western Front, but it wasn't going to be a warm welcome. The communications, the planning, and even the knowledge of the lines were in complete disarray. The Canadian Major General Turner that Ashley talked about earlier got there and he realized what a complete gong show it was and decided he was going to find out the situation for himself when no one seemed to know the state of the front lines. He crawled through the mud himself and found out that there really was no front line. Everything had been blown up or decimated in some way. He petitioned Alderson, again, not to send his troops in, but he was rebuffed. Again, check out our other episodes because this is not the first time this man tried to save troops. So on April 4th, the 6th Canadian Brigade began to relieve the 76th British Brigade that was occupying some area that was just south of the newly captured craters. This battlefield had actually turned into another salient where the Germans surrounded the Canadians and the British on three sides. Sounds familiar. (laughs) The, The Canadians attempted to dig in and defend, but every time they dug deeper to avoid the snipers, they were almost, and in some cases, completely swallowed up by the mud. Their saving grace was the new Brody steel helmets in this case, though. Not for the mud, but because the men were actually trying to cling on to the sides of the craters instead of getting sunk down into that mud. So the snipers could pretty easily pick them off when it's all three sides. Mm-hmm. Um, before, the Canadi- before this, the Canadians and most of the British were wearing soft cap hats. But in 1915, John Leopold Brody, an engineer working at the Army and Navy store in London, submitted his design to be patented. It was a stronger and easier to man- manufacture than the French Adrian helmet, which was a re- recent patent as well. But not everybody had adopted that one yet. It was designed after the medieval kettle hat, or chapelle de fer, with a flat steel brim and was pretty much just a bowl of steel on top and a wide brim. It wasn't great at stopping direct or close rifle range or rifle fire, but it made a really huge difference for the shrapnel and artillery fire. This was the first battle that saw that that helmet saw active service in, but there weren't actually enough to go around. So the men had to keep them in the trench store. And when they came to the front, they would switch out their soft cap for their helmet. And anybody that was going back as their break had to hand in their helmet. But defending these craters was absolutely horrific. They would, like I said, they would cling to the sides in an attempt to stay away from the mud in the bottom. 
but the snipers were picking them off. And Ashley actually mentioned this earlier again. The cigarettes were a big problem here. Nobody was allowed to smoke in the craters because if you lit up, they could see that ember on the end and it would tip them off to your position and they would pick you off. Uh, On April 6th, the Germans attacked with heavy artillery, bombarding the 31st Battalion for 17 hours. The 31st were completely ravaged, but stayed and held their position. They were cut off from the rest of their company, and being only 35 strong, they were really easy pickings. They were attacked by 150 Germans, but they were able to push them back to their trenches with close rifle range fire. The 27th were in as bad or maybe worse shape. The officers hadn't slept in over 100 hours and had suffered a three-day artillery bombardment and close-range fighting. And also on the 6th, the 29th came in to relieve them. So thankfully, they could have a little bit of a break. Uh, But the 29th were green, and the Germans knew it. So they unleashed another barrage on the unknowing soldiers attempting to situate themselves to a terrible place they found themselves in. The Germans continued the assault and pushed up from the south, destroying the Canadian position and cutting them off from the rest of them. The British and Canadian command refused to give up any ground. This was kind of a mantra of theirs forever. It was, hold the line, don't give anything up. And so Turner ordered that their position be taken back. But unfortunately, there was more confusion and the men secured smaller craters to the north instead of the larger craters, number four and number five, because the battlefield had changed so much with all the extra shelling and artillery bombardment that was going on. They got information back to headquarters that they were actually successful, but the German prisoners and the poor quality aerial photographs showed that the Canadians didn't have the success that they thought. So on April 9th, the Canadians were ordered to take back Crater 3. Again, they thought that they were successful, but they were actually occupying a smaller crater to the northeast. They were... Essentially, they were flying blind here, trying to get their objective, but with no maps and no communication and basically, hey, there's a hole over there. Try to find it. Try to get it. The Germans and Canadians went back and forth with the Canadians having some success. They were at least able to stop the Germans from taking back craters six and seven, which was somewhat miraculous considering that they had little to no artillery support. In the end, General Alderson finally ordered the Canadians to fall back and withdraw, which I'm sure most of them were thankful for. Now, the British saw this as a breakdown in the Canadian command, so someone had to answer for this huge failure. And from the top, which was Sir Douglas Haig, who was the commander-in-chief of the British, to General Alderson, the Canadian Corps commander, it was clear that there needed to be some disciplinary action. This could have been Alderson's chance to get rid of Turner, And if you listen to our episode on Ypres, we talk a little bit about the rift between these two. But instead, Alderson asked Turner to turn the blame towards Brigadier General Ketchin of the 6th Brigade. He refused, most likely because he knew that Ketchin did his best, considering the horrible planning and all the horrible conditions that his men were subject to. And then Turner turned around and even accused Alderson of being at fault and not supporting the intelligence that had been collected and disregarding information from those below him actually running the operation. Infuriated by this, Alderson went to 2nd Army Commander Sir Herbert Herbert Plummer, requesting Turner's Turner's removal. Plummer was also looking for someone to blame, so he was totally happy with his suggestion. He didn't care. He just wanted a scapegoat. 
But there was an issue with that. No one ran it past anyone in the Canadian government, which the government and military are separate, but there's, you know, ins and outs between them. So it went down the chain or maybe up. I don't know the direction. Maybe just side to side. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It went through a chain. (laughs) It went somewhere and people heard about it. (laughs) And either way, a man named Sir Max Aitken, who was Canada's military rep at the front, uh, but he was also a newspaper magnate, member of the British Parliament, and had been knighted and also appointed by Ashley, guess who? Sam Hughes! Sam Hughes! <laughs> <laughs> so, Aiken decided to pull some strings to get a meeting with Haig. In the meeting, Aiken told Haig that the Canadian government wouldn't see their war hero scapegoated in that way. Haig, who may have disagreed with how the Canadians did things, decided it was better not to create a rift between the Canadians and the British and allowed Turner and Ketchin to keep their jobs. But Alderson was actually the one who was sacrificed. A few other commanding officers were also removed from their positions, causing a relatively big restructuring. Um, unfortunately, St. Eloi was not only, ca- not only caused 1,300 casualties, but also really damaged the Canadians' reputation and lost British-held territory. So all in all, it was just terrible all the way around. I feel like at this point in time, we're often telling the same story. (laughs) I know it just sounds like the same thing over and over again. I'm ready for a change. (laughs) (laughs) It's coming. It's got to be coming here soon, right? (laughs) Just like backtracking, though, I I read about the whole helmet thing and I'm like, My mind was completely blown that they didn't have helmets for like a year. It seems so obvious, but I mean, obviously I didn't look back then and whatever, but I just thought that was... It it is. It's, you know, you have projectiles coming at your head and that's killing a bunch of your troops, but they're wearing fabric. Yeah. Like, I wonder how long it took, you know, like medieval knights... To wear something on their head? Like how many heads got cut off or something before they were like, we should put something on. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it took so long this time. I'm sure there's some historian somewhere who has examined that. So (laughs) if anyone anyone wants to write us an email, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please explain why it took so long for this. All right, Um, so this brings us to June 2nd of 1916. So Brigadier General Victor Williams and Major General Malcolm Mercer arrived in the front trenches just in time to witness a rain of artillery fall upon the 8th Brigade. Now, the Canadians had been also holding the southeast corner of the Ypres salient from Sanctuary Wood down to Mount Sorel, which were the last remaining high points that the British, um, well, the B-E-F-C-E-F, were able to withhold from the Germans. So while the Germans had augmented their fortifications during this kind of period of stagnation, the Canadians uh, struggled to simply maintain the integrity of their own trenches from the constant battering of rain and shell fire. Now, Williams and Malcolm had gone to the front to evaluate how to better secure the lines from a potential offensive German attack, but their efforts came too little too late. 
So at 8.30 a.m. that morning, hell was completely unleashed. Now, any form of retaliation was ineffectual, let alone possible. The surrounding trees exploded, projectiling splinters of wood like shrapnel. Trench walls caved in, burying both the alive and dead along a 100-kilometer front. Now, one by one, maple cops, arma wood, and sanctuary wood fell. Now, General Mercer was killed while Williams was captured, making him the highest-ranking Canadian POW in the war. Now, the GM... The GM... What was that? (laughs) (laughs) The name of a French or Belgian town that we can't pronounce? Okay, let's try that again. So the Germans offered the Canadians a false reprieve at 1 p.m. that afternoon. As the shell fire let up, four mines detonated underneath the Canadian trenches, exploding Canadian ammunition piles with it. So for those left to survive in the trenches, they were quickly overrun by the advancing German infantry. With what limited artillery power the Canadians actually had, they fired blindly into no man's land. But their two 18-pounders still managed to at least kind of hinder the German advance. But, I mean, it, it really wasn't enough to stop anything. Now, in the support trenches, the Princess Pats had also been heavily hit by German artillery, and they had lost 85 men. Now, although the Germans had overrun the front lines at Mount Sorel, Hill 61 and 62, and the eastern edge of Observation Ridge, the Princess Pats refused to allow the Germans to expand into their flank, um, and they sacrificed the lives of over 400 men in doing so. Now, one German officer wrote, uh, The resistance of the officers and some men who remained to the last in a portion of almost an obliterated trench was magnificent. But I'm sure for their loved ones at homes, um, it was anything but magnificent. Yeah, it's not Um, the word I would use. Yeah, not the word I'd use either. So in the aftermath, um, they surveyed the damage that lay before them. They noted that the communication trenches were clogged with the dead, singly and in agonizing heaps, buried under portions of parapet until only bloody limbs were exposed. The wounded lay quivering at the bottom of the trench or crawled desperately along, dragging their mutilated bodies to some place for shelter. For the Canadians, it was truly a day of obliteration. Now, as we've come to see from the high command in the past, Bing ordered the immediate recapture of the high ground in fear of a second offensive attack from the Germans. But the Canadians were just ill-prepared. They'd just suffered through this heavy devastation, and it didn't change the fact that they were short of artillery and reserve units close enough to the front lines to provide the necessary manpower to execute this counter-effects this counteroffensive. Disjointed communications caused further confusion and delay. And Shana, you mentioned this before, but the British soldiers had even commented that the Canadians should be moved to a quieter sector on the salient where they could cause less damage to their operations. But Bing was eager to prove himself and the Canadians. So in the early morning of June 3rd, the commander of the 49th Battalion, William Griesbach, was commanded to advance several battalions to the front lines. Now, in the dark and chaos, reserve units moved forward to only be greeted by not only an artillery barrage, but gas. So after the Second Battle of Ypres, um, the Canadians had been issued protective masks. Although it helped to save their lives, um, it definitely impeded their movements. 
It was made of flannel dipped in a chemical solution to sort of dilute the effects of the gas. It had two glass eyepieces and a rubber mouthpiece. So not only was it difficult to see through, but it was also difficult to breathe in. So while gasping for fresh air, like drool would drip down from their chins as the sweat from their foreheads mixed with the chemicals that impregnated the fabric and the solution would in turn sort of burn their eyes. So it wasn't the best solution. Now their movements to the fronts were also further slowed by the caved in trenches and corpses that lay scattered. Now their own artillery was firing short and they continued to do so for over an hour. Now, runners from the front lines had sent messages to adjust their firing positions, um, but unfortunately, those runners rarely survived long enough to, to deliver it. Now, adding to the confusion, the gunners were instructed to only recommence firing after the initial bombardment at zero hour, once the flares had been sent from the front lines to indicate that the infantry had met their objective. However, the German barrage was just so dense, it, it was really difficult to see these signals. So this meant that the 7th and 10th battalions on Mount Sorel, the 14th and 15th on Hill 62, and the 49th and 60th on Sanctuary Wood were left on their own charging uphill in daylight. The 7th, 10th, 14th, and 15th battalions on the south side of the salient stood little chance against the camouflaged German machine gunners. Now, Sergeant George Armsby of the 15th battalion stated, I don't think that any of the boys ever figured on coming out of that fight. And personally, I have myself up as a goner. Now, all four battalions in this case were eventually forced to get dig in to avoid total loss of life. Now, the 14th Battalion, they weren't willing to resign from their objective at Sanctuary Wood, but they would sort of be alone in their resolve. Now, their support battalion to the rear was immediately shot down, and with their commander killed, they made a reactionary decision to dig in. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Gascon, I hope I said that right, um, also commanded uh, his 60th Battalion to dig in. Gascon later noted that there were no words to describe how his men were hammered to pieces, and in good conscience, he couldn't send any more men to their deaths. Now, painter A.Y. Jackson, who was a member of the famous Group of Seven, was a private in the 60th, and he would later recount coming across a young soldier in the field, staring blankly into the sky, the blood flowing like a river from the limbs that had been torn from his body, and all he could do was move forward, stepping across the young man's entrails. It was a sight that would be permanently etched into his memory. Now, for the remainder of the day, there were sporadic, small, combative exchanges, but for the most part, the soldiers were left to assess the damage and re pardon me, refortify their positions. So walking through a trench, ankle deep in blood, Lieutenant Gray noted, here, for the first time, the hell of the war came to me. In a span of two days, there were already 3,700 Canadian casualties from the 3rd Division alone. Now, from the perspective of author Tim Cook, the counterattack on June 3rd at Mount Sorel showed their inexperience, and those that survived did so on pure grit, and without the proper artillery support, it would be a continuous uphill battle for the Canadians. Now, Bing had actually called for yet another counterattack, 
But there's only so many times you can like bang your head against a brick wall. So unfortunately, like the headquarters, they made the more rational decision. Just sit back, re-prepare themselves and just postpone an offensive attack for the 13th of June, which I, I think was a smart move in this particular case. Honestly, that doesn't sound like them. Usually it's like, nope, you go in there. I know it's stupid. I know it's the worst idea ever, but you go in there and die because that's what I tell you to do. So I'm surprised that they held back on that. Yeah. I mean, I get what they're coming from because the more time you give between like the attacks and counterattacks is like it gives the Germans the opportunity to refortify, stand their ground, and then they can launch something else. And you don't want them to do that, right? But when you're dying... Yeah, when you're not going to have any men left. Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) The armchair historian. Yeah. Sitting comfortably. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. We can talk about it all we want. That's right. (laughs) So anyway, for the next few days, um, they were rather restless ones, um, as the trenches were randomly hit with artillery or gas. But then on June 6th, uh, the Canadians would again experience yet another devastating blow. Now, four mines again were detonated under the feet, this time of the 28th Battalion at the small village of Hooge. Now, of the 650 men in the trench, 300 were either wounded, killed, or taken prisoner. Hey, we've been there. We have? We went to the Hooge crater. The huge crater, remember? No. Yeah, that's where we had that really good sandwich. Oh, really? Yeah, huge crater. Huge crater. I always said huge crater. I knew that wasn't right, but... I don't remember that. Oh, I'll send you the pictures. We'll put it up on our website or our social media. I'll have to go through my photos. I remember the craters at Vimy. Mm -hmm. No, it was on the tour we went from Belgium. Remember, we took that really amazing tour, and they took us to a huge crater. Don't remember. Oh, (laughs) we did. (laughs) I've decided I'm going to have to go back and do that tour again one day. Yes. I, you know what? We're going to have to find the company, see if they're still doing it. And we will plug them like crazy on our social media because it was the best tour ever. Totally. They do still do it because I check every now and then. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, but I do. Well, we'll find out the name and we'll put it up there and we will plug them because they took us on this trip, this van trip throughout all of these World War I battlefields. And it was like they took us to their friend's field where they found rifles and all of this World War II junk or World War I, sorry, junk and took us for a really great sandwich at Huge Crater. And <laughs> I yeah. loved it. It was a fat, I hate to use the word fabulous, but it was a Interesting. Amazing. Sure. Yeah. Well, good to know. I'll have to look through my pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Alrighty. um, So under the cover of shellfire, the Germans advanced on the Canadian front lines. And perhaps somewhat miraculously, miraculously, that, you know what, one day I'm going to be able to go through this and be able to pronounce all the words that I want to. (laughs) We're new at this. It's okay. (laughs) I've done good with Brigade and Brigadier this time. I am proud of you. Thank you. I am also proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
So somewhat miraculously, the 28th Battalion regained their footing and with the supporty, uh, the supporty, the support of the... Uh, the support of the 31st Battalion and B Company on their flanks, they largely drove the advancing Germans back across no man's land. So this time, Bing uh, decided against a reactionary counterattack altogether, and he actually stuck to his plan to launch the offensive on the 13th. So General Haig had actually provided a number of artillery battery units to support the Canadians, and more time was being given to the Air Force to provide reconnaissance work so the Canadians weren't being blindly sent into no man's land just to dig their own graves. If this was the same problem that you had um, in the Battle um, of Elwha. was like nobody actually kind of knew where the Canadians were, where the Germans were, and it was all very confusing and you're stumbling around in the dark. And that's partly part of the problem of all this. So it was nice to see that they they had a little more preparation for this counterattack. Good for them. They learned their lesson a little bit. (laughs) Okay, so once they um, did locate the German strong points, the Canadians launched a four-day bombardment on the German front lines starting on June 9th. So 45,000 18-pounder and 30,000 howitzer shells were launched. I can't even fathom these numbers. It's crazy to me. Um, And one German historian noted that it was like the complete reversal of the June 2nd attack that the Canadians faced. So, of course, um, having reestablished communications between the artillery and observation officers, the 1st Division was ordered to recover the territory from Hill 60 up to Sanctuary Wood. Now, Curry knew that any element of surprise would be lost after the initial um, artillery bombardment. Um, but he rightly anticipated that the Germans would be the least suspecting of a night attack. So in the cover of darkness, Arthur Curry sent his men to the front lines and unleashed a fury of artillery and machine gun fire. Now, the disheartened Germans, they could barely muster their strength to provide an, an effective defense. This is how devastating this artillery barrage was. So when we reach zero hour, um, the artillery then extends its firing range to the German rear to prevent their support troops from moving forward. Then the men of the 3rd, 16th, 15th, and 58th battalions advanced in the rain up a muddy hill. But unfortunately, by moving the artillery barrage to the rear, um, the commanders actually left the front uh, advancing infantrymen exposed. So it was kind of a race to the German trenches before the Germans could effectively regroup to stave off the attack. So, you know, the adrenaline is rushing through the veins. The Canadians charge forward and they engage the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. And in just under an hour, the Canadians had recaptured most of the high ground that they had previously lost two weeks prior. Oh, finally, some good news. Yes. Hooray. (laughs) (laughs) But um, maybe not quite hooray. Um, The feeling of victory kind of swiftly left as the Germans launched an artillery barrage on the newly captured territory. Now, Private Frank Walker, who was a stretcher bearer, noted that 2,000 wounded have passed through our hands since the attack. Hundreds more are dying of exposure a mile away, and we cannot reach them. Although the Canadians remained steadfast and they were able to successfully reoccupy the territory, 
it cost them 800 or pardon me, 8,700 casualties. So known to the soldiers as the June show, uh, the sacrifices of our Canadians at Mount Sorrel would kind of be lost to history. Like I had never heard of this battle. And historians say this was largely because it was eclipsed um, by the stories from the front lines that were coming from the Battle of Verdun at the time. Um, but there were important ramifications that influenced future Canadian operations in the war. So from a strategic perspective, um, the Canadian artillery was starting to learn that they provided key support in protecting the front lines, not only for offensive enterprises, but also defensive ones as well. And then from a social political perspective, the battle could kind of created some interesting divides. Now, first, so I guess I should correct myself. I think Sam, Sam Hughes is still around at this time. Maybe next episode I'll clarify that for everybody of when we truly see his demise. <laughs> <laughs> when we um, are finally rid of him. <laughs> that's right. So um, I, Bing was not, not a fan of Sam Hughes, as I don't think a lot of people were in, the, in Europe, but um, <laughs> he had, was growing tired of him and his demand for influence over the Canadian Corps. Um, and he began to actively distance himself from, of course, this boisterous minister. So his first action of defiance was to appoint Louis Lipset as head of the 3rd Division, rather than the preferred Garnet Hughes. Um, from Bing's perspective, this was sort of an important step of freeing the military from political influence. In his opinion, the Canadians were just too good to be led by politicians and dollar magnates. And if the credit of the Corps is to be augmented, the men must be led by leaders. But um, Bing had also noticed a divide between the soldiers themselves at this time. There seemed to be this growing competitiveness between the units, and it was really hindering the effectiveness of operations. So Bing would set out to establish a more cohesive force over the coming months. And that's the end of the Battle of Mount Sorrel. So it was a bit of a victory in the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as you were so eloquently speaking about that, though, uh, in the beginning, after we were talking about the shell shock, you know, we were saying, oh, well, yeah, you know, that was terrible and all that. But I think if we didn't tie for the most depressing subject, you may have won on that one. Oh, sorry. that was pretty brutal. Sorry. I don't think you have to be sorry for it. <laughs> Maybe it was a little too graphic. <laughs> well, it's good to good to get an idea of well of what was going on because that's actually the point of what we're doing. That's right. You should yeah. know what happened. Yeah. Alrighty. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of our episode. Thanks for listening. Um, actually, I did want to say one thing that I completely forgot about because I omitted it from my notes somehow. But during the shell shock part of my speech there there was there's a video out there and i want to make sure that people go and check it out um it's you can find it anywhere on youtube but i will link to it in our show notes um there's a video of british shell shock patients and a lot of people at the time and since then have said no it's just propaganda that's not actually how it manifested but now people are countering that and i'm sure at the time people countered it and it is really eye-opening to the effects of what was actually going on there. 
So if you can go look up British shell shock video, I think I Googled on YouTube, find it, check it out. It's, it's sad, but it's really mind blowing too. Anyway, that's the end of our episode. Thanks for <laughs> listening. We're What About the Canadians. You can find our show notes and our sources on our social media and our website. Our social media is What About the Canadians and our website is whataboutthecanadians.com. So check us out and send us a message if you want and we'll see you next time. <laughs>